We'll hear argument first today in number 91886, Bob Reeves versus Ernst & Young. Now, Mr. Eldon. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case involves RICO, and in particular, it involves what does it mean to participate in the conduct of the affairs of an enterprise. The case is here on writ of certiorari from the Eighth Circuit, which affirmed the summary judgment for an accounting firm on the ground that they did not participate in the conduct of the affairs of the Farmers Co-op. The only relevant fact the Court needs to know, I think, about the Farmers Co-op is that it financed itself by selling demand notes to its members. The Eighth Circuit held that uh, the proper test was whether the accounting firm engaged in the operation or management of the co-op. But to understand the test, I think, it's necessary to keep three facts in mind. There's an enormous number of facts. I'm just going to stress three. I think without it, it's not possible to fully appreciate how restrictive the test is. All courts agreed, and I'm going to use the language of the courts, so this is not my version of things. The courts who gave the summary judgment agreed that these facts uh, a jury could have found. First, that Arthur Young, quote, created the financial statements of the co-op. Not audited them, not audited them, but created them. And the district court explained in detail what he meant. Arthur Young invented the cost figures. Arthur Young, according to the district court, engaged in a blatant fiction. The records of the co-op showed that a sale had occurred. A multi-million dollar transaction had occurred, a self-dealing transaction that rendered the co-op insolvent. It was a sale. All the records showed that. Tax returns, minutes, court decrees. They chose themselves, consulting no one, to ignore that fact. And numerous other points that the district court made, they created the financial statements, and they created financial statements basically on their own without consulting very much anyone else, which concealed the insolvency of the co-op and concealed the self-dealing and even crimes of the principals. Second, the courts agreed that Arthur Young took the financial statements it had created and used those affirmatively to mislead the investors and the buyers of the demand notes. They did this by participating, that's the court's word, participating in the creation of condensed financial statements, which everybody admits were fraudulent and misleading. Even Arthur Young makes no attempt to de defend those. And they attended annual meetings where both courts, Eighth Circuit and District Court, agreed. They lied in response to direct questions. They deliberately concealed facts from the investors. The jury found and that was not even appealed on the weight of the evidence, so it's become final that they did this with the actual intent to mislead and deceive investors. And the Eighth Circuit said that everybody knew that if the investors were not told of the insolvency, they'd continue to buy demand notes. And if they were told, there'd have been a run on the co-op. Was, was this uh, uh, in cooperation with any particular officer of the company who was doing this same thing? Your Honor, in this case, the principal wrongdoer was already in jail when this happened. There were nine directors, five of whom remained in office and who were at least guilty of negligence, if not collusion. There were four reform directors who were trying to get to the bottom of things and tell the truth to people. You see, I'd find it easier to, uh, uh, to say that they participated in the conduct of the uh, company's business if they were acting jointly with one of the managers or directors or at least an employee of the company uh, who was uh, conducting the company's business, then I could say they participated in the conduct. But, but as you describe it, uh, and anybody that they would have made common cause with was, was gone, and they were just acting on their own. I would like to make it as easy as possible for your honor to agree with me, but the, but the truth is that they basically did it. Them, they did 95% of this themselves. No one, there's no proof anyone even knew what they were doing. They pulled off the fraud, the cover-up themselves, to protect their friends who were by then gone. Now, Carrick Garadia did pull together some of the financial data. I mean, there was a lot of financial data in the financial statements. It wasn't all cooked. Some of it was straight. Carrick Garadia pulled that together. But I think, essentially, the creation of the false financial statements was virtually totally the work of Arthur Young. But their friends stood to be harmed or to be hurt uh, when the extent of their derelictions came out. Is, is that fair to say? The, so that there was a, there was a motive... Uh, I guess is what I'm saying, right. the accountant to do what it did, even though it may not have been in a literal sense, jointly, sense literally, 
jointly participating at the time it uh, it committed the acts that you complain right. of. Right. Your Honor, the, the, our, our view that we, sold, we presented to the jury was that the motive was to cover up what amounted to crimes, not only by Jack White, who was on his way to jail or in jail by then, but the lawyers for Jack White, who had suborned perjury, who had put this whole crooked deal together and who could have themselves been disbarred or who knows what. Those were the people. The people who needed the cover-up were the people who changed auditors to Arthur Young. Nothing wrong with the old auditor. He had done it the right, he had recorded it as, as not being owned by the co-op the previous year. The people who needed the cover-up brought in Arthur Young and I got it. In terms of participation, if I could address Justice Scalia's point, because I would like to make it easy for everyone to agree with me, uh, I think that there's a lot of things that Arthur Young did not do. They didn't sell the grain, they didn't do the lease, they didn't hire and fire employees. They participated in the conduct of the affairs by participating in the conduct of the creation of the financial statements. The third fact, which I'll allude to only briefly, is everyone admits they use the financial statements. May I just ask on that, that question? Yes, you take the position that whenever an auditing firm creates financial statements that it, it's uh, engaged in the pattern of racketeering activity? No, in fact, I tried my best not that Arthur Young tries to portray our position as applying to the typical auditor. It does not. This was an extreme fact situation. If an audit, there's two things an auditor can do that are perfectly proper. One is it can audit books prepared by others. If the others created a fraud and the auditor misses it, he may be negligence, but it's not RICO. We never contended it was RICO. Second thing, he can go farther. He can help them. He can help them put the books together. You can, you can outsource your accounting function. You can hire Arthur Young to do all your accounting work. There's nothing wrong with that. But once they've gone to a certain point of putting the books together, they can't audit themselves. They want a certified audit, they need to bring someone new in. I'm in complete agreement with Arthur Young's statement of that in their briefs, as to the proper role of the auditor. Arthur Young went far beyond the proper role of the auditor here. By creating the books. By cre creating the books, doing it fraudulently, and then auditing themselves and, and, and not catching themselves. Well, you say they can create the books so long as they don't then audit themselves. Your Honor, I, mean, I think it is... Sort of retroactively taken out of RICO when somebody else later does an audit? Your Honor, I'm not actually speaking of a legal principle here. I'm speaking of the accounting rules of the accountants set for themselves. They allow themselves to a small degree to help the client put the books together, even though they audit. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think RICO was intended to, uh, to uh, uh, codify uh, general rules of accounting practice, was it? I mean, I have no indication of that. It plainly was not. Plainly was not. I thought this provision here in particular was, was meant to prevent a company from becoming a, a, an evil mechanism, a, a company becoming a, uh, uh, a law-breaking company as, as an enterprise. And when you're not working with someone in the company, uh, you, you continue to work as an outside uh, auditor, I don't see how that, how that comes about. Well, in terms of whether outsiders are covered, a point which uh, Arthur Young has conceded, so of all the amicus. The preceding language in section 1962C talks about people employed by or associated with. The classic RICO case, numerous predicate acts, concern bribers. Bribers are normally outsiders who are influencing only some aspect of the business, not controlling the whole business. Well, that's true, but they are working with someone who is a manager of the business or an employee of the business with authority to conduct the business's affairs. So you can say it is the business that is, that is corrupted. Your Honor, in that case, I now have an answer to Your Honor's question. Sorry I'm so slow. The Board of Directors had to adopt the report of Arthur Young. And Arthur Young had to persuade them to do that at meetings by misleading them and not telling them the entire truth. Arthur Young could not single-handedly have set up the meetings and, re and, and promulgated the final report. <laughs> Well, misleading them isn't the same thing as making common cause with them. I mean, when you bribe one of them, the two of you uh, make common cause to conduct the business in, a, in, a, in a, an evil, unlawful fashion. That's, that's true with bribery, but not with fraud. With fraud, you might be deceiving them into doing If you're bribing them, you're persuading them to do what you want them to do. Fraud, you might be pers uh, deceiving them into doing what you want yeah. them to do. Well, that's unlawful, no doubt, but I don't see why that becomes a RICO violation uh, uh, under this section of RICO anyway. Well, the, the taking 1962 as a whole, all three sections refer to pattern of racketeering acts. That's, that's the prohibited thing. If you do the prohibited thing to invest in a company, that's A. If you do it to control a company, 
That's B. But if you, but C covers merely participating in the conduct of the affairs or conducting the affairs. If you, even if you conduct all the affairs, you're still covered under C. Well, Mr. Eldon, in interpreting that language, would you think the night watchman might be covered or the elevator operator or anybody who committed a pattern of um, unlawful acts? Uh, no, no, Your Honor. In fact, the word participate which has a half-century tradition behind it, and which was a word well-known to Congress at the time they used it, plainly excludes people who are not materially involved in, in uh, furthering something. Participate has been used uh, throughout all the all 50 states, numerous federal statutes, have participants as people who materially aid or assist someone else who could be the primary wrongdoer or could just be equal with them in accomplishing something. So a participant is not someone who does some, just a person who goes out for coffee while they're committing the fraud is not a participant under the securities laws. You don't even get to a predicate act that way. It's only when you materially aid and assist. But it could be at any level of uh, involvement, and you'd say that's involved in uh, the conduct of the enterprise's affairs? I, I, I would say not the very lowest level, but not necessarily confined to the highest level. A person who affects a... a uh, a purchasing decision, bribes the purchasing agent, is covered even though he doesn't also handle marketing. Well, we're dealing with uh, some pretty fuzzy language here, I suppose, and the courts are all over the lot in giving meaning to it. Let me ask you this. Do you think that the rule of lenity should apply in our interpretation of the statute? Your Honor, and where it is fuzzy, uh, Maybe we should err on the side of uh, being careful before we extend liability? Your Honor, the, the rule of lenity is to some extent at tension with the statutory command to give liberal construction. I think the way I reconcile them is if by giving a liberal construction to certain words a person is able to come to a sensible meaning of them, then it's not ambiguous in the rule of lenity. In other words, using Congress's guide, guideline of liberality, if a person's able to understand the words, then the rule of lenity would not apply. If it's still ambiguous, it would. Well, I'm not sure how anyone would understand these words just reading them. Your Honor, I think unlike the pattern of racketeering concept, which is a novel concept in RICO and which is very difficult to understand, these words all have been interpreted by courts in the same way dictionaries interpret them, in the same way laymen use them, and they were used in many other statutes. The concept of participating in the conduct of affairs is used in the FIREA statute that was just adopted. A similar concept has been used in the securities laws with no problems, no one claiming it's unconstitutional. Participate in the conduct of the affairs is fairly straightforward English prose, uh, and, and I think that RICO as a whole is a very, very complicated statute because of the pattern of racketeering concept and the through the pattern of racketeering language, which fortunately I don't think is before the court today. And I agree that that makes the entire sentence very complicated. But assume for the moment we know, but let, let's say it's stipulated that there was a pattern of racketeering acts. Once that's stipulated, I think the rest of the sentence is not hard to parse, I mean, relative to other federal statutes. But doesn't, uh, doesn't the notion of participation require at the, some kind of minimum level an, an action with other members of the management? Uh, and at the point uh, that, the, uh, that the accountants were, were doing things dirty, the, the other members of the management who would have been aware of this and whom they might have been acting with were gone. So that weren't they in the position, as you described the facts, not of acting with the management, but of duping the management, as well as borrowers and so on, uh, for the benefit of their friends who were in jail. They weren't participating. Uh, they were deceiving both the management and, and, the, and the buyers of the notes. Your Honor, I agree with the first comment Your Honor made that at, at a certain very low level of participation, I would agree it is not covered. And I think that that is not simply a, a, a preference, or I think that is in the word participate as it's been used for half a century. But, but it is sufficient. It is sufficient to drive the getaway car is sufficient, even if you drive the getaway car all by yourself and you're the only one who drives the getaway car. If you're doing but you are car, also acting in concert with the people who have robbed the bank. And, and, and that analogy doesn't hold here because they're not acting in concert with the, with the remaining members of the management. 
Uh, they are, in fact, acting for the sake of helping members of the management who used to be there but were gone by the time they can, but the, uh, gone by the time the auditors committed their wrongs. Your Honor, I think there's a distinction between conspiracy and participate in the conduct of the affairs. Other people were also participating in the conduct of the affairs, the salesmen, people who were making the divan notes available, the, the board of directors, which was continuing to run the co-op, calling the meetings. There was a lot of things going on at the co-op that Arthur Young had nothing to do with. And, with, and without the co-op being an ongoing enterprise that was functioning in many other respects, Arthur Young's fraud would not have succeeded. Mr. Eldon, uh, l- let me give you a hypothetical which I think will, uh, will, will highlight what, what's, what's troubling uh, uh, Justice Souter and, and me as well. What if uh, the offense here were selling, fraudulently selling defective parts to a corporation, which then sold uh, a, a, uh, 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 an instrument that incorporated those defective parts to the public? Would that be, which is the conduct of, of the corporation's business, would that be participating in the conduct of the affairs of the corporation? I think no. I think a person who merely is engaged in transactions with the company is not conducting its affairs. Why is that any different from, from what we have here? That person who merely sells defective parts to the company, that's all he Fraudulently, does. fraudulently. Fraudulent. He commits a fraud on the company. Yes, just, just, just as the accountant firm uh, pawned off on the company a fraudulently defective uh, financial statement, uh, this person uh, pawns off on the company uh, fraudulently defective parts. As I read the word conduct, it requires some carrying on of the actual business of the company, not merely selling to them. Well, I don't see that in either case you have an actual carrying on of the business. Thank you, Your Honor. I would like to save the rest of my time for reply, if I may. Very well, Mr. Alden. Whoops, whoops. We'll get to you in a minute, Ms. Oberly. <laughs> You're eager. Mr. Dreven, we'll hear from you now. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Now, the issue before the Court today is whether the Eighth Circuit was correct in holding that the RICO statute requires that a defendant operate or manage the business in order to be held liable under Section 1962C. Uh, That holding, we submit, is wrong for several reasons. First, it departs from the text of the statute, which does not use the words operate or manage to describe the requirements for liability. Second, and I think this goes to Justice O'Connor's question about the application of the rule of lenity in this case, the Eighth Circuit's holding ignores that Congress used the words operate, control, manage, supervise, and direct in other parts of RICO and in other contemporaneous laws. And I will detail those laws in a minute. When Congress wished to impose the requirements of operation or management for liability, it did so explicitly, not as the Eighth Circuit did, uh, through the back door by a gloss on words that do not contain that sense. To, to manage is one thing, but to, uh, to act authoritatively on behalf of the company is something else, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Couldn't, couldn't we impose that minimal requirement and find that even that requirement was not met here? You, you don't have to be top dog, but you have to be an agent who can act authoritatively on behalf of the company in order to conduct its business. And well, there's nobody here who, who meets that qualification or who, who was participated with. By, by the accountants. Well, first, Justice Scalia, the statute covers two different ways of engaging the enterprise uh, in this pattern of racketeering activity. First, it covers people who conduct the enterprise's affairs. Right. Second, it covers people who participate in the conduct of the affairs. Uh, if, by hypothesis, the accounting firm had become, in effect, the chief financial officer for the company, and was given by the board the authority to create its financial statements, which in effect happened in this case because there was no one within the company to do that, the accounting firm can be said to have conducted this limited aspect of the company's affairs. Even if you turn to the the second aspect of the statute... What what aspect of the affairs did did they conduct... They conducted, in essence, the creation. Not participated in the conduct, but they conducted what? I'm focusing now on their creation of the financial statements of the company 
in which they made fundamental accounting decisions about the valuation of assets and then gave those to the company. That's not the company's uh, affairs any more than my keeping a diary could, could, could seriously be considered my affairs unless that's presented to someone with the objective of raising money from that person or some other objective. Well, there are no, there are no, there's no business being conducted. Well, of course, in this case, the financial statements were integral to the money-raising functions that the co-op was carrying out. Exactly. But now, who was cooperating with the accountant in raising that money? in conducting that but affair of raising money. It, it is the, the uh, co-op's affairs to present its financial data. There's, this case doesn't involve the construction of the concept of the affairs of the enterprise. It's been taken for granted not only in this case, but in all other cases that have considered this issue, that part of the affairs of a business enterprise consist of fairly presenting its financial data to people who rely on it, which would include in public companies the Securities and Exchange Commission and investors, and in this case covers the farmers who invested in the demand notes. And all it's of just presenting it, just generally presenting it. Yeah. Well, it, it, I think raising money is part of its affairs, but I don't think developing and 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 writing out a financial statement. Is well, I, I think th I think that all companies which maintain accounting staffs and financial departments view it as part of their affairs. This is not a narrow term in the RICO statute. This is a statute that's designed to cover comprehensively enterprise criminality. And the, the concept of affairs has never been given a narrow reading. May I ask you a question on this second category that you described? Do you think the statute has a different meaning when it refers to conduct of such enterprise affairs through so forth than if it simply said participate in such enterprises affairs? Yes, I think that is a narrower meaning. It does meaning. require some level of seniority in the company, is that right? No, I'm not sure that seniority in the company is the issue. Uh, I think what, what, what the issue is is that it has to be some direct participation in the conduct of the affairs. And, and I can give an example. Well, now, give me an example of the difference between participation in the conduct of the affairs and, on the other hand, participation in the affairs. Well, for example, we have a number of RICO cases that cover bribery of court officials to obtain official action. That, I believe, is participating in the conduct of the affairs of the enterprise because it induces official action. Merely filing a fraudulent pleading with a court, a false pleading uh, that, that uh, misrepresents facts, would be participating in the, the affairs of the court generally, but would not be participating in the conduct of the affairs. Similarly, there are cases in which people have been conducting gambling enterprises on corporate property, uh, not involving really the resources or any of the prestige of the company, but simply using it as a location for doing it. Generally, that could be viewed as participating in the affairs of the company, but it's certainly not participating in the conduct of the affairs. But if, if you apply that analogy here, what, what happened here is exactly what happened uh, in your court uh, uh, case. That is to say, the company itself was misled, just as the court was misled. No, I, th I think the, the analogy to this case would be if somebody were drafting opinions for the court fraudulently and the court was then issuing them. Here you have financial statements that were prepared fraudulently and issued by the company, with the accounting firm serving as creator and the explicator of the fraud. And that's different from pre presenting facts to the court fraudulently, which the court then adopts? Well, if, if the court then adopts them, then you have a different kind of question, I believe. Oh, I see. But if you have it... If, if it's successful, uh, it, it's covered by RICO. If it's unsuccessful, it's not. Well, if, if the court, for example, invited the parties to prepare uh, findings of fact, and they were done with the knowledge that they would be used as the basis for the court's submissions, and they were done fraudulently, this would be a different case. Of course, we're not talking here about examples that that are actually covered by the RICO statute unless you have the requisite pattern of predicate crimes. And in this case, of course, we do have a pattern of predicate mail fraud and securities fraud crimes. Now, the Eighth Circuit's test is wrong most fundamentally because RICO itself uses the terms that the Eighth Circuit read into Section 1962C in other places. Section 1962A prohibits operation of the enterprise with racketeering proceeds. Section 1962B prohibits acquiring control over the enterprise through racketeering acts. The D.C. Circuit said that Section 1962C requires control, 
But it's quite clear that Congress imposed that requirement on a different section of RICO, not on this section. The gambling statute, 18 U.S.C. Section 1955A, applies to whoever (coughs) conducts, finances, manages, supervises, directs, or owns an illegal gambling business. And that statute was passed as another title of the same act of which RICO was a title. Using standard principles of statutory construction, it would be very difficult to say that Congress intended the same limitation in RICO that it explicitly passed in another title of the same act. And two weeks after passing RICO, Congress enacted the Continuing Criminal Enterprise Statute, which applies to a position, a person in the position of organizer, a supervisory position, or any other position of management in a group engaging in narcotics activities. And against the background of those statutes, Section 1962C must be read as Congress wrote it to cover generally persons who participate through usurping the enterprise's activities, corrupting the enterprise's activities, or using the enterprise's activities to enhance their ability to commit criminal acts. Assume a construction company. Uh, Is it your position that uh, a worker, the lowest paid worker who digs ditches for this construction company, is he conducting the affairs of the company within the meaning of this statute? No, he's not conducting the affairs. He's he not. may very so well. So there is some direction uh, uh, element to it, some he may supervisory, very well. some authoritative element somehow? I don't think there's an authoritative element, Justice Scalia. It does speak to people who participate in the conduct of the affairs, even indirectly. And although, obviously, the government is not seeking to use RICO against ditch diggers or secretaries or people without some level of involvement in the enterprise so that they can inflict the sorts of harms that RICO was designed to cure. Uh, The statute, as written, refers to people who participate in carrying out the affairs of the enterprise. And if they are able to do that... But that doesn't include ditch diggers? I think it... Or secretaries? I I would not say as a matter of law that it excludes any... It does include ditch diggers? As a matter of law, the statute doesn't exclude them, no, but the statute... Which means it does include them? Yes, it does, Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Dreeben. Ms. Oberly, your turn has been reached. <laughs> Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court's task in this case is, just, is obviously to decide what Congress meant when it included a conduct requirement in Section 1962C, and the Court needs to approach that task by choosing from among all the possible meanings that are set forth in the briefs and the arguments the one that most fits with a common-sense, logical understanding of what Congress had in mind. Our position is that the Eighth Circuit's operation or management test meets that requirement. At least we seem to agree with the government that the place to start here is with the language of the statute itself. But in fact, the government's approach and the petitioner's approach, I think as Justice Stevens points out, has the tendency to completely read out of the statute the conduct requirement altogether, because it's very difficult for them to articulate a distinction between participate in the affairs, which is not what the statute says, and participate in the conduct of the enterprise's affairs, which is what the statute says. Conduct is there for a reason. This Court has already said in Sedema that conduct is one of the elements that a RICO plaintiff has to prove. So we're talking about words of limitation, and they mean that you can't prove a RICO violation simply by... Does the lawyer who <coughs> is the outside general counsel uh, 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 to a concern, uh, is it, whether that's an enterprise or not is beside the point, but, uh, <coughs> but would the lawyer be considered to be participating in the conduct of the business when he gives advice as to whether this conduct is legal or not? Not, in my opinion, Your Honor, when he gives advice, which when he gives advice, the company, the enterprise, is free to accept it or reject it. The company is still making its business decisions about how to conduct it. Is the inside general counsel uh, in the same position? If he gives advice, if the inside general counsel, if he or she gives advice to management, again, it's advice which management can accept or reject. If, on the other hand, management delegates either inside or outside general counsel the power to make decisions and, for example, appoints the lawyer as agent to conduct the corporation's legal affairs, then that would be a different question. But it doesn't say conduct. It says conduct or participate in the conduct. What if, what if, if, if an officer of the corporation comes to a lawyer and says, look, we want to we run this scam on the public. 
I'd like your advice as to how it can be conducted in a way that is least likely to be de- detected by the, uh, by the uh, bank auditors or whoever. And the lawyer says, okay, this is how you do it. Ultimately, Your Honor, Wouldn't I think... Wouldn't he be participating in the conduct of the affairs? Depends, I think, Your Honor, on whether that lawyer is given... If he doesn't have control himself, which I don't think he necessarily has to have, is he operating under the control of the CEO or someone who can direct the affairs of the enterprise? He's not controlled by him, but he's, he's helping him. He's participating with him in the scam. Then he's participating in the affairs of the enterprise. Which but not in the conduct of the enterprise. Not in the conduct. I, to me, conduct imparts some notion, which we get from the statute, uh, its language and its legislative history and RICO's purpose, Conduct imparts some notion of management or direction of the affairs. In in helping somebody who manages, aren't you participating in the management by helping someone else who manages? If you're operating under their direction, if you are just giving them advice, even if it's advice about how to commit an illegality, ultimately the the decision-making authority still resides with whoever it is that is running, operating, or managing the business. You're an outside advisor. You may be an inside advisor. I don't think the outsider-insider distinction makes that much difference. The question is who is calling the shots. And if you're doing, if you're acting for the company with authority to make those decisions, then you may be participating in the conduct of the affairs. What if, uh, what if it's, uh, what if a, what if a certificate of counsel were required by law? Uh, and or what if they what if they uh, what if they uh, what if a certified audit is required by law? It is, uh, and uh, without it, uh, without it, uh, the business can't go forward. It is required by law for SEC traded companies, for example, that you have yes, an accountant yes. report every year. But that the conduct of the businesses. You affairs, say that would not qualify either. No, Your Honor, because what the outside accountant is doing is expressing a professional opinion on how the client conducted its financial affairs. The outside auditor is not making business decisions for the client. The outside auditor is not deciding whether to make particular investments. The outside auditor isn't deciding whether this co-op should advance for initially 4.1 million and later up to 5.8 well, million yeah, to but the gas hall plant. What the outside auditor is doing is coming in and recording in financial statement form mm-hmm. decisions already made well, by the people so, running the, the enterprise. Well, uh, that uh, may be so, the honest auditor, but what if, what if, it, what if he's a crooked auditor oh. and, he, and, he, and he wants to uh, further the affairs of the uh, of the uh, of the business and without a without a crooked dishonest statement the uh, enterprise can't go forward your honor what you're suggesting i think is something akin to a bribery case where the company bribes the auditor says we know we have no basis for no i didn't say that at all i just the the, the auditor is acting in its self interest uh, wants to keep a good client well let's take this case as, as an example your honor that's the theory in this case, that the scheme was to keep the co-op afloat even though it was insolvent and that Arthur Young was somehow instrumental in that you scheme. You don't think that's participating in the conduct of the no. business? I think what Without I, it, the, the, the business wouldn't have been conducted. Your Honor, with the opinions that Arthur Young issued in this case, which were qualified opinions on whether the co-op would ever be able to recover the money it had invested in the gas plant, which showed the co-op to be losing $100,000 a month, showed a six-point, almost a $6 million advance to the co-op. So you, uh, you just want to, I suppose you want to win this case on any ground that you want to win it on, uh, but you want to win it, you submit that you want the general rule that no accountant uh, that who does no, does no more than jigger with a financial statement, no accountant is... Uh, is uh, participating in the conduct of the business. When an accountant acts as auditor, I would say it is very rare that he is participating in the conduct of his client's affairs. I I can conceive of and will give you situations in which an accountant goes beyond that, although they're not this case. But suppose that the accountant is not only auditing the client's financial (laughs) statements, but is sitting on the client's board of directors, for example. Uh-huh. He is then conducting or participating with the other directors and in so the you, conduct. And, and of you the, say, even if the president of the company says, look, 
we're in trouble. Uh, can you jigger up the, uh, f- our, our financial statements, uh, your CERF certificate? And the, the uh, auditor says, sure. I think the auditor then clearly has committed the predicate acts of securities fraud. But is well, he conducting that, yeah. the, is well, he conducting that isn't what that isn't what the question is precisely that he the predicate acts alone are not enough to establish a RICO violation even if he acts uh, a at the direction or at the request of if he acts at the direction or at the request of then I agree he's participating in the conduct but well, I, that, that is my exact that was my hypothetical well, your Honor, then I'm perfectly prepared to agree that an auditor who acts at the direction of his client as opposed to an independent outside auditor who makes mistakes, who does even terribly substandard work but is still doing his work, not the client's. Well, what if you said or request a minute ago. Pardon? You said or request a minute ago. <laughs> just just direction or is it direction or request? That was a mine. request that the auditor can't refuse, basically. Is, is <laughs> <laughs> Gee, he, can't refuse. Con- he can't refuse without losing a client. It's the way I would characterize the test, the, the operation or management test, is control or under the control of. And if the president of the company either gives a directive to the auditors or makes a, quote, request in a way that the auditor can't exercise independent judgment, then he may well be participating in the conduct you of the client's affairs. You can't exercise his independent judgment without losing the client? Is that one of the tests? Pardon? No, I, th- I think he can. Because that, I'm sure, happens once in a while. That, Your Honor, I think you could easily have what the accounting profession calls an independence violation, which is a violation of professional standards, without necessarily having a RICO violation. Uh, you can have situations where the auditor, for whatever reason, any number of reasons, gets too close to the situation but is still not conducting his client's affairs. He may be violating his own professional standards. He may be committing predicate acts, but he's not managing or operating the business. Of course, in any event, if I understand your opponent's position, that's not this case, because the, the wrong here is that the auditors acted too independently. They created everything, if I understand their theory, rather than did something at the direction of somebody in management. As I understand it this morning, virtually the entire theory here of what Arthur Young supposedly did wrong, the tra- we have a concession, I think, that normal auditing does not implicate RICO. And this case seems, from petitioner's point of view, to turn on whether on the facts of this case, which, by the way, is not even a question they presented to you or on which the court granted cert. They asked you to decide the legal test. They didn't ask you to apply it. I'm not saying the court can't consider the facts. I'm just saying it suggests that perhaps when two lower courts have already looked at these facts and found no RICO issue, that it maybe doesn't warrant reexamination by this court. But still, focusing on the creation of the factual state of the financial statements as what they say Arthur Young did wrong. What Arthur Young did here was take the client, the co-ops, books and records, turn those numbers that reflected completed transactions that the client had already decided to engage into, turn those numbers into financial statement form. Let's talk about the Gasahaw plant for a minute. This started off as a $4.1 million. Well, they just didn't do it. Uh, they just didn't do it on their own. Uh, they were the accountants for the firm? No, Your Honor, they were the auditors for the firm. All right, for the auditors for the firm. And they just didn't do it. They just weren't doing it for nothing. They must have been hired. They were hired. They were retained as auditors? They were retained as auditors. And then, so they're, please do our books. No, excuse me, Your Honor, but auditors... I mean, please do our, please audit our books. That's a Please critical. Now, there's a request. That is a critical distinction. There's a request. That's a critical, and it, and it says to the auditor, "Please come in and conduct your affairs," which is auditing. We, the co-op, the client, have already made decisions about our business affairs and our financial affairs, and we want you to come in and look at our books and records, put them in financial statement form for us, because that's not something we're very good well, at. What, uh, but, suppose the. Uh, <laughs> I don't suppose Arthur Young uh, did what it did uh, without some kind of a motive. The suggestion here, the the motive is supposed to be keep a client on whom Arthur Young is losing money because we're having to spend far more time than our fees will ever compensate us for. That's part of the motive. The second part of the motive suggested is help Jack White. Soon be out of business if that's the way you do business. This turned out to be an audit that took a whole lot more time that we, the firm nevertheless went ahead and put in the time necessary to complete it. But the notion that we were doing this to keep a client well, is, well is at odds what, what, with the facts. The why did they do it? Why did they do it? 
I don't think they did it in I the guess statute it isn't talking in about, that, yeah. but the, the, the other motive attributed to Arthur Young by the petitioners is that Jack White, the, the convicted felon, j- prior general manager of the co-op, was Arthur Young's friend that we were trying to protect him, that we were trying to keep, the, and, the, and the ultimate motive is that we were trying to keep our client, the co-op, appear solvent when, in fact, we knew it wasn't solvent. If you look, Your Honor, at, again, at our report, which was qualified, to say that we cannot tell either the board of directors or any members of the public who might want to look at these financial statements whether the co-op will ever recover its investment in this gas hall plant. What we can tell you is that you've already sunk nearly $6 million in it. You may never see it again. You're losing $100,000 a month as you continue to operate this plant. And frankly, Your Honor, had anyone cared to read those financial statements, they would have known that the co-op was hemorrhaging red ink all over the place based on the report we did issue. Their complaint is we should have said more. Maybe we should have. Maybe that's an auditing mistake that we should have said even more. But there is enough in there. To but, compl- but, but do you think, you think that Arthur Young was attempting to, uh, to uh, uh, perhaps attempting to keep the, by, by, by its financial statement, by its auditing report, attempting to keep the uh, company uh, afloat? If we were trying to do that, we, we, we failed miserably at it. We, well, I know, I mean, but, we, were, they, but you, were they trying to do that? No, Your Honor. I, I mean, there's no support for that notion. When we issue a qualified opinion... What if they were trying to keep it afloat, and uh, without it, uh, without this effort, uh, it would have been a, really a dead fish? That, that, let's change the enterprise for a minute. Well, let's there let's could be a, change the enterprise. Yeah. Just how about my question? Okay. I think the answer to your question is no. That doesn't mean that I think auditors are always off the hook. I think that it's very possible to suggest that auditors are are under the situation you pose conducting their own affairs, in other words, the affairs of Arthur Young. There's no doubt about that, but how about also the affairs of the company? When they don't make the business decisions for the client, when those decisions are already made before the auditors arrive on the scene, and whether they're good decisions or bad decisions, fraudulent decisions or not, the auditors come in, and the most that you can say about the auditor's conduct is that it's substandard, and it may be so substandard as to amount to securities fraud. That still does not turn it into conducting the client's affairs. You have to draw a distinction. Ms. Oberly, uh, I, I have trouble uh, going along with the, the, the notion that, that you have to be subject to the direction of somebody in the corporation as opposed to merely acting pursuant to request by or in cooperation with the beginning of this provision is so broad, it says it shall be unlawful for any person employed by or associated with an enterprise. Now, what time is it up there? If, if that, uh, if, if that uh, uh, language, uh, if what was intended is what you suggested, it seems to me that uh, they would not have said something as broad as or associated with it, which just simply said any person employed by or directed by. I, view, I agree with you that associated with is quite broad, and it brings in outsiders. Does it, mean, to, does it mean people who are directed, who are subject to direction? No, Your Honor, I don't think that's the function of associated by. I think the function of associated by brings in people who are not employees of the enterprise. They, they, are, they may be independent contractors. They may, may be lawyers who are outside the enterprise. And I think the statute does apply to outsiders as well as to insiders. But I think our focus here today is what did Congress mean on the one word of limitation it put in there, not the broad words, but the word of limitation, which is you have to participate in the conduct. And you say what they meant by it was to cancel out associated with. No, I think associated with, as I said, would bring in an outsider who, if you just had employed, no matter what the lawyer or the accountant or the outsider did, it wouldn't be covered if, you just, if it were just limited to employees. So associated... Someone who is subject to direction. He is someone associated with the enterprise. You would say employed by or directed by or something other than associated with. That, that, that's a very loose connection. I think it's, I agree with you. I can only repeat that I agree with you that associated is broad enough and serves a broad function of bringing into the statute's coverage people who are not necessarily within the enterprise. But I think all of those broad words in the statutes, associated with, participated, indirectly, all of the broad words 
are still modifiers of conduct, and our focus here has to be on what does conduct mean. And the difference between this case and the Court's prior RICO cases is you had parties before you urging restrictive interpretations of RICO based on language that wasn't there. Well, what, what, what would be your position if an in-house accountant, a full-time employee of the company, did everything Arthur Young did here? Now, the hypothetical gets a little strange because he has to say, I certify as the company accountant that, or, or I, I advise you. Uh, but he did no more. But he was an, let's say that he was an officer of the company, but that's all he did. Uh, same result? No, Your Honor, he can't, as you point out, he can't do that. The in, in-house accountant who attempts to audit the company's own financial statements is, I think, participating in the conduct of the company's affairs. The outside no, but, advisor... But, 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 but suppose he, he says, as in-house accountant, I have attempted an audit of the company's affairs, and my results are as follows. And he does exactly what Arthur Young did here. Or I would say he is participating in the conduct of the company's affairs, but I would say the distinction, and I'm not ever saying in this argument that outsiders are automatically exempt just because they're outsiders, but the inherent role of the outside accountant, the outside auditor, is to come in and, and conduct the auditor's affairs expressing a, fin- a professional opinion on how the client conducted the client's financial affairs. And your internal accountant is conducting the client's internal financial affairs. The outside auditor, on the other hand, comes in several steps removed, looks at transactions the client's already done, whether they're good transactions, bad transactions, they've happened. They're a done deal before the auditor gets But, but in a very real sense, the outside auditor lends more credence, more weight, uh, to the disclosures and, and, and to the statements than would the in-house accountant in, in my hypothetical example. Well, certainly and therefore not. even, f- and, and, and therefore furthers the enterprise in a greater degree. Furthers the enterprise, I don't think, is the test for conduct of the enterprise's affairs. Well, it seems to be relevant in deciding what conduct is. I th- what Congress was concerned about as the courts noted it over and over again in its RICO opinions, was the infiltration of legitimate businesses by organized crime or by people committing patterns of racketeering activity. When you're talking about the outsider who's brought in to express a professional opinion on what the client has already done and who has no power to direct or control or run those decisions by the client, the danger of infiltration by the outsider is just simply not there. And that's not to say all outsiders aren't covered. The bribery cases that the government discusses at length in its brief, I agree, outsiders can, in a, by paying a bribe, in effect take over the decision-making authority of the enterprise by paying the bribe, and now the people who are supposed to be making the decisions inside the enterprise aren't. They're ceding their authority to the outside briber. I'm not saying outsiders are out of the statute. You say, which, which way does the, in your, you, which way does the bribe run between the outsider? From, in this example, from the outsider to someone in the enterprise who would normally be conducting its affairs, but who has now effectively ceded his decision-making so, authority so, to the bribe. So your, your, posi- your, your position would remain the same if the company actually paid a bribe, I mean, more than what the auditor would usually charge, to falsify the books. I think it probably would, Your Honor, although it might then be probably that... Probably would what? You would, my position would remain the same, although it might be that I would look at it as a different enterprise. I would then look at the accounting firm as the potential enterprise. But you, you take s- the position the in-house counsel would be liable, bribe, or no? Yes, because he either controls the legal affairs of the company, where you said counsel, now, all, all, the hypothetical whatever. is all he's done is exactly what the accountants did here and no more. But he controls the affair, the financial affairs of the company, or he operates under the direction of the board of directors. Why, who does why does he do it any more than Arthur Young did? Pardon? What, why does he do it any more than the accountants? The, the outside auditor has no authority to come in and tell the client what to do. The outside auditor comes in and makes recommendations about how the client's financial affairs look how they should be presented on financial statements. But the client is free to accept or reject those, uh, the advice of the outside auditor. 
the decisions cannot be made and are not made by the outside auditor. I know we have a fact dispute here where petitioners contend that the decisions were made by the outside auditors, but we've got four well, I suppose in my hypothetical, the directors could have rejected what the in-house accountants said. That's correct, and in that event, they would have taken away from the, from the in-house accountant the ability to make decisions in the, in the financial sphere of the enterprise's affairs. In this case, the Board of Directors actually affirmatively adopted the financial statements that Mr. Eldon makes the centerpiece of his argument about what Arthur Young did that constituted conducting the, co conducting the co-op's affairs. It's true, we drafted those financial statements. That is common professional practice for auditors. But after drafting them, we sat down with the Board of Directors and met at length, went over the financial statements with the Board, and at the end of that meeting, the board, several meetings, the Board members had no further questions, and the testimony in the record is that they then voted to adopt those financial statements as their own. What we did was an express, express an opinion on their financial statements, which is conducting our affairs, but which is not conducting the client's affairs. I'd like to note on the legislative history and, and what is it that the Congress had in mind here in the use of the word conduct, that there's every synonym that Congress ever used for the word conduct in the legislative history is operate, manage, or run. It's, they're all eight circuit synonyms. There is absolutely nothing in the legislative history to suggest that Congress meant the conduct requirement to be something less than operation or management, to be just mere participation in the affairs, as Justice Stevens asked a little while earlier. And in the Senate and House report, both Congress described 1962C as prescribing the operation of a business through a pattern of racketeering activity. I'd also like to note that using the Eighth Circuit's operation or management test, there's been no explanation really from the government about why the catalog of RICO cases that they give us under, in their brief would not fit, every single one of them would not fit under the Eighth Circuit's operation or management test. We've already talked about the bribers, whether they're insiders or outsiders, I think they definitely would be covered by the Eighth Circuit's test because they are either operating or managing the business or operating under the control of a, of a higher-up who tells them what to do. The government's also concerned about the low-level defendants, although Mr. Treban acknowledges that the Justice Department doesn't bring RICO prosecutions at some de minimis level, but they've nevertheless expressed concern about the small fry, uh, as the cases refer to in criminal enterprises. But there's no reason that those defendants as well would not be covered by the Eighth Circuit's operation or management test. Because even if they are not themselves operating or managing or conducting, because they're not at the top of the hierarchy or anywhere near the top of the hierarchy, they are operating under the direction of the people who do run the enterprise. And they therefore participate indirectly in the conduct of the enterprise's affairs. And as I said, the government really has not given us any examples of RICO prosecutions that they bring or that they even want to bring that would not be covered by the Eighth Circuit's operation or management test. Earlier it was questioned whether the rule of lenity ought to be applied in this case. It's clear, I think, to everybody that the statute is not a model of clarity. If there's any doubt about the Eighth Circuit's test, then I do suggest that the rule of lenity is the appropriate way to resolve that ambiguity in favor of the Eighth Circuit's test. This case is very similar to what the Court did last, center, last term in Thompson Center Arms construing a civil tax case that had criminal implications, couldn't find a way to resolve the ambiguity from either the legislative history or the statutory language, and it used the rule of lenity as a tiebreaker. The situation is the same here. If, if the court is unable to conclude from the language, purpose, legislative history of RICO, then the rule of lenity ought to still lead to the same result as the Eighth Circuit here. Don't you think that the provision of the statute uh, requiring a liberal construction uh, trumps the rule of lenity? If no, Your Honor, I mean? think the Court addressed that in a, in a footnote in Sedema, where it said that you can harmonize strict and liberal construction in, even within the context of RICO, 
by applying strict construction to sections 1961 and 1962, which are the statutes, the sections that have criminal applications, and liberal construction to section 1964, which is RICO's civil remedies provision. And this, of course, is a case involving section 1962. I think if you... You, you have different results that, that, that uh, the same transaction can be... A civil violation and not a criminal no, the, no, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying the provision we're construing here has both criminal and civil applications. Right. Therefore, the rule of, of lenity is applicable. Where liberal construction would apply is, if you, is for example, in Sedema, where you were construing 1964 itself, RICO civil remedies provision. You weren't construing the criminal applications of the same provision. Here we're construing a statute that has both criminal and civil applications, which calls for the rule of law. Ms. Oberly, what if Congress passed a strictly criminal statute and said it shall be liberally construed? Well, at some point, Your Honor, I think that the court runs into constitutional problems of vagueness and due process concerns, because if, you, if the court is unable to yes, but give the, the statute a construction that people can understand, that potential criminal defendants can understand, then I don't think liberal construction can be used to save a construction that, that defendants don't know how to conform their conduct to. But the rule of lenity has been thought to extend further than just the constitutional prohibition against vague criminal statutes. That's right, but, but in, in answer to Justice Scalia's question about how do you reconcile what Congress put in here about construing li- RICO liberally, reconcile it by, you can, you, you'll do that as far as you can, but at some point, if you reach an ambiguity that's going to put criminal defendants in a position of not knowing what their conduct should be in order to escape criminal prosecution, then that rule of liberal construction is going to have to give way to giving criminal defendants clear and understandable notice of how to conform their conduct. No, but you, don't, you wouldn't disagree with the proposition that Congress could say in a statute, the rule of lenity shall not apply to this statute, even though it's a criminal statute. No, I wouldn't disagree with that, but I would still think it's the The question court. then is whether the general comment on liberal construction is the equivalent of that or is limited to the civil context. The, the, I th- limited to the provisions that are entirely civil. In I think the sensible way to interpret it is limited to civil, but even if you gave it the broader interpretation, then I think the court has to still ask itself, are we giving this statute a construction that potential criminal defendants can understand? And, and we can't invoke liberal construction and remedial construction principles to come up with an interpretation that potential defendants can't conform their well, I, to. I assume we should apply the rule of lenity to this provision instructing us not to apply the rule of lenity. And if we apply the rule of lenity to that, we would come out applying it to the civil provisions and not to the civil provisions. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Ms. Oberly. Uh, Mr. Eldon, uh, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. I'm going to limit myself to answering questions posed by Justice White and Justice Scalia. That's all I have to add. Uh, Justice White asked about whether uh, uh, there, was in, there was evidence of keeping it afloat by fraud. The point is, because of the novel way this case proceeded, we have a final jury verdict that they originated the fraud, that's right from the jury instructions, with an actual intent to defraud, that they deliberately concocted phony statements with no actual belief in their truth. Arthur Young did not appeal that on the way to the evidence. They conceded motive, intent, all those things are established conclusively at this point. So the question that Your Honor put, um, Ms. Overly uh, responded by going into what happened at the board meeting, all sorts of factual things. The point is that is all over. We know that Arthur Young deliberately set out to mislead people and created the financial statements to do so. That's taken as given at this point in the well, case. Why is that uh, participating in the conduct of the business? It's, it's not necess- that this does not necessarily dispose of the entire case, Your Honor. I thought it was responsive to Your Honor's question. If I'm wrong, I'm sorry. May I ask this one question just... Uh, was this motion for summary judgment granted before or after the jury trial? The, it was granted before. It was renewed at the close of all the evidence. The judge agreed to reconsider and then reaffirmed his previous decision. So the record that we look at is the entire record or, or the record at the time of the original motion? Frankly, Your Honor, the record is essentially the same, but we have cited the trial record for convenience all throughout the case, and we did it again in this brief. It's, it's, a, it's certainly proper to confine uh, the court's attention, as far as I'm concerned, to just the trial record. It's also proper to consider just the pretrial record. They're essentially the same. Uh, I'd like to answer Justice Scalia's uh, very first question. Uh, Should we limit RICO's scope to people who can act authoritatively on behalf of the company? 
I think there's three reasons why we can't. The predicate acts, bribers and extortionists, ordinarily do not act authoritatively on the company. Justice Scalia, in a later question, pointed out people can merely be associated with the company. They can be outsiders. That's conceded. And we have the word participate, which fortunately, in RICO, for a change, is a word with well-settled, very precise meanings, uh, fully, uh, fully uh, covered in the securities laws in aiding and abetting law. And it means it gets us off the ditch digger problem. Ditch diggers aren't covered by the securities laws either. No one's had problems in a half century of construing these statutes. Very low-level ministerial people, file clerks, receptionists, are not considered participants. They're not considered aider and abettors. A person must do something, must materially aid, must materially assist, must engage in some significant act, but does not have to be running the show, does not have to be the primary wrongdoer, does not have to do everything. Well, that's fine when you're talking about securities fraud, but RICO doesn't just apply to securities fraud. It applies to all sorts of, all sorts of misdoings by corporations, breaking people's legs, uh, a lot of things. Uh, a ditch digger could be involved in some of those things. Your Honor, I'm focusing on the fact that Congress chose a word, participate, which helps lawyers and judges understand what Congress meant to do because it was a word that even in 1970 had such a well-settled meaning as striking a middle road. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Eldon. The case is submitted.